Hello, Michael Nimmo again here, presenting the 20th chapter of the podcast of the book Around Seria in 20 Days. We're going to get the chapter in a moment, but first of all, if you want any more information about the book or even to buy it, just go along to www.michaelnimmo.com. So, all that done, I hope you enjoyed today's chapter about AC Milan. Ciao! Money. That was Money by Pink Floyd, which, of course, you already know because you have impeccable taste because you're listening to this podcast. It's appropriate for lots of different football teams, but particularly so for the team that we focus on in today's episode, which is AC Milan. We'll start with a quote. The San Siro is my dearest memory, hand in hand with my father. At the turnstiles, I made myself tiny to be able to let the two of us use just the one ticket. So said the ladies' man, Silvio Berlusconi, in his obsequious biography, reminiscing about the good old days. Bah, the good old days. But where have they gone? This was one of the big questions surrounding the club when I made my trip to see Milan. But before we get to all that, we have to confront the elephant in the room, as glaring and unavoidable as a friend who has sprouted a second head overnight. That elephant is, of course, Il Cavaliere. In the early 1980s, Milan were having a fairly torrid time of it. After winning their 10th Scudetto in 1978-79, not even a youthful Franco Baresi could halt the club's slide into mediocrity, and they were subsequently relegated in 1980 for their part in the Calcio Scomese scandal. They popped straight back up to Serie A, but it was a fleeting moment, and they went back down again immediately. After winning promotion the following season, they were faced with a new challenge. They were skint. But then, riding in on his white horse was a youthful, and from photographs you wouldn't think that he's aged since then either, Silvio. Since becoming owner in 1986, Milan have enjoyed an extended stay in the sunny climes of the upper reaches of Serie A in European football, winning a grand total of 28 trophies. In his early years, the Dutch triumvirate of Van Basten, Hulit and Rijkaard ruled supreme alongside homebred players of the pedigree of Maldini and Baresi. In charge of this stable of stars was Arrigo Sacchi, who shunned the concept of Catenaccio and instead preferred a free-form total attack. This was to prove to be revolutionary in the Italian game, as the previously held conventional wisdom was that the Catenaccio system was the best, whose strongest proponent, Craig Levine in his spell as Scotland coach, uh, uh, sorry, I mean, Anibale Frosi, claimed that the perfect game was the artistic and philosophical equivalent of a blank canvas a nil-nil draw. For years, Milan were a fixture at the top of the tree, doing battle with Europe's finest for glory, most memorably against Liverpool in the epic Champions League final of 2005. This went down as one of the all-time classic finals. However, despite watching it, I can't say I remember it all that well. In a pub in the centre of Edinburgh to celebrate the end of the university term, I had one ear open to what my classmates were saying, but both eyes fixed on the TV. 
At halftime, seeing Liverpool losing 3-0 and a group of Italians toasting their inevitable victory, I took the only logical course of action at the time and got drunk. Therefore, not for the first, and certainly not for the last time, I erased the part of my brain that should have held sweet memories. The second half comeback to 3-3 and resulting penalty kick drama and glory for the men from Anfield. Instead, I have only flashes of the match and the evening as a whole. They had their revenge two years later, while I watched on from a bar in Atlanta. And given that it was A. Boiling, B. Just After Lunch and C. I wanted to be in a state to remember the match, being careful about my alcohol intake wasn't too much of a struggle as I watched the Rossoneri win 2-1. It's not just Berlusconi who was longing for times past in the weeks around my visit. The spiritual home of Milanisti is the Corva Sud, and they had released the following lengthy statement before I went. Adesso basta. We've had enough. Following the umpteenth disappointment of this troubled season, and having already hinted at a protest in December, our patience has now run out, and as supporters of our beloved team, we have identified the defining points that have brought our Milan to this low. Let's look back at last summer for a moment, and in particular when we qualified for the group stages of the Champions League. A few days before the closing of the transfer window, we made our doubts clear, and gave some suggestions to the club on how to reinforce the squad. We showed a banner that asked the club to strengthen the defence and midfield, and to not go through with the obviously senseless signing of Alessandro Matri. Dr Galliani's response on TV was clear and unequivocal. Supporters don't make the signings, and those who complain are the small minority. Now, the facts speak for themselves. Matri went in January because he's useless, and even worse were the bad moves regarding the defence in midfield. The history of Milan has always been studied with great players and an immense transfer budget, and for some people it was a godsend to bring these phenoms to Milan. Now though, the narrative has changed and economic restrictions have meant there's next to nothing to spend, which had been glaringly badly mismanaged. We ask, for example, how it was possible to let Massimo Ambrosini leave, who, apart from being captain, was a strong character in the dressing room and even more how we let Andrea Pirlo leave for free by not giving them the three-year contract he wanted, and then giving Keisuke Honda a huge contract two years later. Too many average players in the place of greats. Too many finished players brought to Milan only because they were big names. Now everyone can see this atrocious policy. Milan are 37 points off top spot and are out of all of the cups. As someone had taken their time to take the responsibility to tell us to shut up, now they can take the responsibility for this debacle and step aside. Perhaps the breath of fresh air that the arrival of Barbara Berlusconi has brought to Milan has made someone tremble? Someone who instead of creating a network of scouts in a top-class youth system, spent their time making deals with the same old agents, who by now seem to have found a home at the club. The response to all the problems since 2007 has always been, we are the most successful club in the world. And behind this answer, they could justify failure and releasing great players, all the while building a squad made up of overpaid players, even if they were of little value. They've pulled the pants down of those who really suffer for these failures, the supporters. Now we're left with a squad made up of a few professionals, surrounded by a crowd of overpaid and useless players 
whose first thought is to publish idiotic photos on social networks and to book tables in nightclubs. These unproductive characters maybe think they're top players, but on the pitch show either little or no value. It's time that these players look for a change of surroundings and leave the squad with a minimum of dignity. Dressing downs clearly don't work and the atmosphere is already heavy. We're sick of having the piss taken by spoiled brats and pseudo-stars. They should take true professionals like Montolivo, Bonera, Abiati, Kaká, Abate, De Chilio, De Jong, Poli and Pazzini as examples. We hope that Seedorf, as the new manager, will take serious action against those who, by now, are unjustifiable. Always with Milan in our hearts, the committee of the Corva Sud. Needless to say, the days of Champions League finals were far off memories for those who paid to watch Milan week in and week out. The someone they alluded to in the final paragraph is the managing director, Adriano Galliani. In his post for 28 years, he's been Silvio Berlusconi's right-hand man since shortly after they met pre-football when Galliani was in charge of a company that installed the TV aerials that these days Milan fans watch their team through. As things haven't been going all that well recently, there was talk of Galliani leaving the club, but the financial hit that Milan would have to take would be astronomical. It's reported that he had suggested stepping down from his role in return for a golden handshake of €100 million. Euros. Imagine the amount of coffee that was spat out when that suggestion was read in Milan's headquarters in Via Aldo Rossi. The club countered with an offer of €45 million Euros, and then a second of €65 million. In the end, he stayed on, and as a salve, one of Il Cavalieri's children side-saddled in to try to sort things out. Barbara Berlusconi had joined the board of directors in 2011, and for anyone looking for salacity, ooh, had a relationship with a permacrocked Brazilian striker, Alexandre Pato. Needless to say, her arrival, while being greeted with smiles and encouraging words, has resulted in Galliani's toes being stepped on. Even more so when his role was redefined as sporting director, with Lady B taking over the role of budget management in the commercial sector. Since then, Berlusconi has of course sold a minority stake in the club, but at the time of the book, any signings that Galliani wanted to make would have to be rubber-stamped by Berlusconi Jr. When the club binned Massimo Allegri earlier on last season, Barbara Berlusconi suggested bringing in ex-great Paolo Maldini as coach. He and Galliani don't see eye to eye, and the former captain's comments didn't help. He said, he, Galliani, has destroyed my Milan. So, the groups in the Corva Sud and Maldini are against Galliani. You'd think that having this in common would mean they'd be friends, right? Wrong. At the last home match before he retired, the Corva Sud showed banners reading, Thanks captain, a star on the pitch, but you have not shown respect to those who have made you rich. And, heartfelt thanks for your 25-year career from those who you described as mercenaries and tramps. Maldini hit back with a curt, well, I'm proud not to be one of them. It's important to point out that not all Milanisti are against Maldini. However, the Corva Sud is the most vocal organ of the team's support. The beef allegedly has roots in that night in Istanbul, when after the match it said that some supporters looking for an explanation of what they'd seen approached Maldini, but their questions weren't answered to their satisfaction. 
On top of that, he had shown little patience with whistles on a few other occasions, gesturing for the Korva to keep its collective mouth shut. As is almost always the case, players come and go, but those in the stands don't go away. But who is it exactly, or rather, which groups are there in the Korva Sud? My good friend Francesco, hello Francesco, is Milanista, and he told me that I should start with the Fossidae Leoni. Looking into them, and Milan supporters' groups in general, gave a dispiriting insight into the changing face of fan groups in Italy. In a phenomenon not unique to Milan, the pool that groups used to have, whether politically or simply as a focal point for fans, has been seized upon by those who see a good business opportunity. As Andrea Ferreri says, Unfortunately, these areas of no man's land, the Corve, are very often subject to foreign entities which are just as unconnected to the state as fan groups are, like criminal groups or shady individuals. They use these spaces for their own economic benefit, and many Corve and groups find themselves forced to cow down to them or their politics, even if they disagree with them. This business model often doesn't seem to be of the kind that you'd declare when preparing your tax returns, while replacing the old guard often seemed to require more forceful means of persuasion than a word in the ear. First though, let's cast an eye back to the start of organised fan groups as we recognise them today and to the late 1960s. The Fossa dei Leoni were the first true ultras group in Italy, formed in 1968. They didn't follow any particular political ideology, as their members represented a cross-section of society, and would go on to serve as a template for many other ultras across Italy. These days they don't exist, and their demise was far from glorious. After a match against Juventus in 2005, one of their banners was stolen by the visitors' supporters, which is a bit like losing the king's colour in battle, if you want an anglicised reference. This sparked a lot of bickering and an accusation that in an attempt to get their property back, they approached the Digos, the special branch, to act as intermediaries. This accusation was denied by the Fossa dei Leone leadership, and were it true, would go beyond the pale of acceptability in the Ultras world. Others suggested that the disbanding of the Fossa was due to political and economic differences with other groups in the Corva. Shortly after the disappearance of the Fossa dei Leoni as a group, the Guerrieri Ultras Curva Sud Milano sprang into existence. There are suspicions that the leaders aren't what you'd describe as squeaky clean, and most bizarrely, it's been suggested that they once tried to extort AC Milan. According to Luca Fazzo writing in Il Giornale, the Guerrieri Ultras swept away the historical groups of Fossa dei Leoni, Commandos Tigre and Brigate Rossonere in a wave of violence in less than three years. Not that those they did away with were all saints either, mind. My ticket was for the Corva Sud, and I happily relayed this to Francesco. The Corva Sud first ring, i.e. the ground section, to be precise. He told me that was where the Commandos Tigre were based. If you've seen any Milan matches on the TV, you may have noticed red flags with a white circle in which there are the overlapping initials CT. That'd be the Commandos Tigre. This symbol, largely due to its colours, is reminiscent of a swastika. Even though Milan's history is more to the left of their crosstown neighbours Inter, the Commandos Tigre are a far right-leaning group. This caused me a fair bit of trepidation, as despite being blonde-haired and blue-eyed, I didn't really fancy the prospect of being surrounded by skinheads. As it was, it passed without note. 
largely I'd suggest because I was there for a fairly straightforward match against Kievo. Another group, the Brigate Rossoneri, the BRN, keen-eyed observers of Italy will note, share a key part of their name with the extreme-left Brigate Rossi of the 1970s, but that's where their similarities end. This group of fans was formed in the mid-70s and was proud to be present at every Milan game, whether in Italy or on the continent. By 1995 there had been a schism and a splinter group, originally calling themselves Brigate Rossoneri too, had coalesced around an ideology that was a bit more to the right than the mother group. Their name would go down in infamy for what happened on the 29th of January 1995. Milan had an away match against Genoa, and prior to the match a fight broke out between locals and visitors. One of these, Simone Barbaglia, had made the trip with an 11cm butterfly knife in his pocket. In a running battle before the game, he stabbed a Genoano, Vincenzo Spagnolo, who died shortly afterwards. The match was live on TV, and the news of the attack spread quickly around the stands, leading to some Genoani trying to break through the plexiglass that divided the home and away fans. By this point, the match had been abandoned, and the stadium started to empty. Fighting in the streets went on into the evening, with the police unable to deal with its scale. Barbalia was arrested shortly afterwards and would later be sentenced to 14 years and 8 months in prison. Vincenzo Spagnolo was almost certainly not a saint, and to think that he was simply an innocent caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time would be naive. However, no one deserves to be killed for their football team. It's said that football is a kind of refuge for a lot of young people who feel lost or have little good going on in their lives. But, to echo the title of the Corva Sud's earlier statement, Basta. Is this what we think of when we reminisce? Perhaps it's a case of the cloudy-eyed nostalgia blinding us to the reality. I remember when I was younger and going out in the centre of Edinburgh at the weekends. There were always guys in pubs who'd walk around and give the evil eye to anyone who so much as glanced at them. They were looking for a flinch, a look held a split second too long, anything that had given them an excuse to clock someone. I told my dad, imagining that in his youth, everyone was too busy excitedly discussing the new horseless carriages that were motoring around town, or marvelling at the hours of enjoyment one could glean from a stick and a hoop. He thought I was being daft, and told me that he'd go to more or less the same places, and young men with too much aggro and not enough brains would carry knives with them. This wasn't at all what Dad's army had taught me about the past, although my dad would probably like me to point out that he's not that old. Francesco, my mate, is from Genoa. I asked him once if he'd gotten any grief at school after Spagnolo's death. He was about 15 at the time. He told me he hadn't, but went on to talk about the disconnection you can get by supporting a team from another city. What's almost certainly true is that the current state of things, both Rossoneri-related and in Italian football in general, 
is far from what Herbert Kilpin would have envisioned when he was part of the group who founded AC Milan in 1899. Together with other associates from Britain, Switzerland and Italy, they founded Milan Cricket and Football Club. Kilpin was co-founder, player and coach all at the same time, a feat which wasn't all that unusual back then, but which would be the envy of many chairman-owner meddlers nowadays. He would take to the pitch wearing a flat cap, and his first team's official match ended in a 3-0 loss, utilising the not-at-all-conservative formation that was very much in vogue at the time, that of a 2-3-5. And people say that Italian football is boring. Kilpin was also responsible for Milan's distinctive strip, saying, ah, We'll be a squad of devils. Our colours will be red like fire and black, like the fear will inspire in our opponents. Before the foundation of Milan, Kilpin had found himself working in Turin, and playing for the recently created and ultimately short-lived Torino Internazionale. In doing so, he became the first Englishman to play in a foreign league, but his team lost both of the first two championships to Genoa. This caused Kilpin to declare to a Genoa player, That's the last time you win! I'll start a club in Milan that'll beat you. He was true to his word, and two years later, Milan beat the club from Liguria to win the league. He and his team would go on to win a further two championships before his premature death in 1916, at the age of 46, which was attributed to his love of a drink or ten. Gone are the days of flat caps, Englishmen playing abroad with only a few exceptions, and two, three, five formations. I found myself in Milan going to see Milan play Kievo, a contest that was to be just as lopsided as a match-up between their respective mascots would suggest, a devil versus a donkey. This was my first time visiting San Siro, and so I wasn't entirely sure how to get there from my hotel. As it transpired, I didn't really need a map, as five minutes after walking in its general direction, there it was, looming up in the dusky Saturday evening sky like a spaceship. It was enormous, all illuminated girders and huge columns at each corner, making it look like it had just landed from a distant world as the mist and smoke swirled up into the darkness of the chilly Milanese night. At its feet were throngs of people, drinking, eating, chatting and smoking, but given the opponents, the atmosphere was calm, to the point of being a little low-key. Kievo's band of fans were kept at a distance, but no one was there to see them or pay them any mind. Milan had been having a bad season by their standards, but losing at home to Kievo would be unthinkable. Rather, this would be Kaká's 300th match for the Rossoneri, and despite having lost the burst of pace with which he used to glide past opponents, he still stood out among his colleagues as being a consistently high-level performer. Hanging over this day of celebrations, though, were comments made by Galliani in the run-up, suggesting that the player had a clause in his contract that would allow him to leave if Milan didn't qualify for the Champions League. A clause that would be activated at the end of the season and which saw him move to the MLS's new expansion team, the Orlando Pirates. As it was, Kaká scored twice, the second a beautiful effort from the corner of the penalty box, while Mario Balotelli got the other. Upon the second goal going in, the wee boy in front of me responded appropriately, but not effusively. Then a couple of seconds later, when he realised it was Kaká who'd got the goal, his regulation celebrating morphed into wild jumping up and down and cheering. The only real chance from the first half came from the Corva Nord's choir boys. I'm not alluding to their innocence, but rather because it sounded like they were all still prepubescent. 
Milan, Milan, they repeated, which, while not getting many points for originality, was certainly succinct. Their vocal pitch reminded me of Easter Road as a boy and the Hibs kids, who you could join in if you were, well, a kid. Back then, the Hibs supporting youth would send local dogs crazy with their chants of high bees, high bees. Scottish life expectancy is by and large quite low, which is generally attributed to lifestyle habits, but watching the football on offer must surely contribute negatively to our chances too. So, while many 17-year-old Italians are surprisingly naive, Mediterranean-raised almost adults, their Scottish counterparts look like world-weary veterans, muttering, the horror, the horror, as they traipse out of their team's stadium. The grown men around the stadium, who significantly outnumbered the Wains, kept quiet for most of the match. Fans lose their naivety and excitement, of this I'm sure. But when do we morph from the giddy kids to the weary adult? Is it during our adolescence that, like with so many other things in life, we become harder and more cynical about football too? Speaking of cynicism, owning a football team when you're a politician seems fairly calculated. However, in the last couple of years, as the economic crisis has bitten deep and people have become disillusioned with the old political order, Berlusconi's benefit from being Milan owner has lessened. That said, on the evening that his first government faced a no-confidence vote back in 1994, his team were playing Barcelona. Milan won 4-0 and Parliament voted in his favour. A bit of further research shows that in 1996, his party, Forza Italia, came second in the general elections, after the season's new purchases, Roberto Baggio, George Weah and Patrick Vieira, had helped them to win the Scudetto. In Italy, elections are always in April or May, therefore in the dying weeks of the championship. Which is kind of convenient, I guess. Then, in the next elections, in 2001, Forza Italia topped the political table, but Milan went south, finishing the season in a lowly sixth place. This after they had splurged almost 50 million euros on the triumvirate of Jose Marie, Redondo and Caca Caladze. At the end of the 2005-2006 season, his party maintained their advantage over other parties, while Milan finished third, with notable close-season signings Alberto Gilardino and Marek Jankolovsky. The next national election was in 2008, but given that it was a snap election, it'd have needed Nostradamus' foresight to have deliberately buttered people up with big money signings beforehand. More than anything else, this was a fallow period for the Rossoneri. And even though they had bought Alexandre Pato for 22 million euros, they couldn't help but finish fifth. We can see from all of this that spending money didn't necessarily result in success. And while Milan were struggling, his political career was going strong. Whether Berlusconi bought Milan for political or business reasons is open for debate. What's sure is that he bought them before his political career began and he made a lot of money. Not only is the owner of the football club, he also owns Mediaset, the TV stations, Mondadori, the publishing chain, Publitalia, an advertising agency which controls 58% of national TV advertising sales, and carrying on with the media empire-building theme in the family, his brother owns a newspaper, Il Giornale. In recent years, as his political star has waned, Milan have had a hard time too. We can't draw simple conclusions here though. As we've seen, apart from the Champions League final in 2007, Milan didn't win anything for a few years, but Berlusconi did. 
Then, in 2011, after splurging a bit of cash and Milan winning the league by six points, he suffered heavily in local elections. Even his party's candidate in Milan's mayoral race lost. Before that last vote, a letter was sent round Milan fans by the Associazione Italiana Milan Club, the central body of the various Milan supporters clubs, reminding them how successful they'd been in 1986 and asking them to make this simple gesture of voting for Berlusconi and his PDL party. This is clearly one of the benefits of a politician owning a football team, although, as previously noted, not enough of them turned out to vote for him. Like I say, simple conclusions shouldn't be drawn, not that I'll let that hold me back. But while the team's successful and the country's going in a reasonable direction, it seemed that folk don't have a problem voting for him. When times are tough, even if the team does well, he suffers. All of his success may also partially be due to the enormous power he wields in other aspects of life through his other businesses, and also due to a dearth of viable contenders. Politics has increasingly become about the show rather than substance, and in this respect Silvio's pretty good. He was a singer on cruise ships when he was young after all, so he knows how to play to a crowd. Being Milan owner and Prime Minister couldn't help the long arm of the law from reaching for his collar in the end, and in 2011 he stepped down as the latter. Found guilty of tax evasion in 2012, he was sentenced to community service, helping out his peers at an old people's home. He's had a good run though. He's been involved in 32 court cases and only got convicted in one of them. Although he dodged a few others thanks to exemption laws passed by... Oh, wait, his government. What a curious coincidence. His standard response to any criminal investigations into him was to plead his innocence and claim of a plot against him by communist judges. Ultimately, only he knows why he bought Milan. And while it probably got him some votes, as shown above... Results on the pitch and the ballot box aren't necessarily linked. As two posters from a blog discussing the subject commented, or the more philosophical. After the match, I managed to get lost, as while it was pretty easy to find the stadium, it proved much more difficult to find my hotel. Probably because it wasn't fecking enormous and dwarfing everything else around it. On my way there, the stadium appeared on my right, so using my legendary orienteering skills, I figured that as I made my way back, if it was on my left, I wouldn't have any problems. Crucially, and this took me 20 minutes of walking and not recognising anything before the realisation dawned on me, I'd gone in and then left by different roads. And so rather than getting closer to the hotel, I was actually walking away from it. <laughs> oh me. Backtracking, I eventually figured out where I was by looking at maps and bus stops, having run out of battery life while I was in the ground. So, although it took me 20 minutes to get to the stadium, it took me almost an hour to find my hotel. In the end I got back safe and sound, although a bit peeved. No matter though, the exercise did me good and I promised myself that I wouldn't make the same mistake when I came back to watch Inter. <laughs>